This episode is sponsored in part by Thousand Eyes. Thousand Eyes gives you visibility, insights, and actionable intelligence into user experience from every user to every application over any network. So you transform your WAN, troubleshoot faster, and deliver exceptional user experiences in the cloud and on-premises. Try Thousand Eyes for free at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers and snag a fun t-shirt. Thousand Eyes. Thrive in a connected world. Welcome to Packet Pushes Heavy Networking. This show is a real throwback to an era long gone, perhaps somewhere in early 2010s when the Packet Pushes was really just a bunch of people getting around the microphone to talk about what they did this week. And I've been fortunate enough to catch up with some people who over the years have come and gone. Uh, they were on Packet Pushes and then they went off to have like real jobs and then they lost those real jobs and became programmers. And I thought it would be interesting to have a conversation around what it's like to be much more focused onto the programming side, still attached to networking, but not actually doing real work like most network engineers do on like real networks but to sit there and sort of like tippy tappy onto a keyboard and check code in and out and stuff like that so joining me today is matt stone brent salisbury dave tucker and darren johnson now all four of those people work as programmers all day and i'm greg farrell i'm your moderator so what i wanted to kick off with is brent um you've just you and Dave particularly have just had a hell of a journey where you've gone from starting a software startup, being bought by a big company, uh, a well-known brand name, which uh, in the end didn't quite make it and collapsed. And now you're uh, uh, having fun employment and, and a, a relaxing break as you transition to the new job. What's it been like going from being a network engineer into being a programmer, like basically spending all day in software? So this is where you like insert the meme of the dumpster on fire floating down the, <laughs> in the water. <laughs> so automation has always been something kind of that we inherently do, uh, did 10, 20 years ago. We didn't necessarily know what we were doing at the time. It was done with like really terrible Perl scripts and same concepts. We grab a config, we do some kind of diff on it. We work with terrible APIs. So in, in that sense, I'm not sure much has changed. But what has mm. impressed me is looking at the the people in networking and how much it has really, you know, I've kind of stepped back kind of from the hardware for the past few years. There's been a lot of evolution mm. and, and not necessarily paying attention to that world much for the past few years. So mainly uh, you've just been doing software, yeah, right? Real. Just pure software networking inside of Docker, really, was what you were doing. Yeah, so we were very focused on like host networking, mm. right? So we kind of took the the uh, you know SDN kind of turned into the the implementation was basically overlays to abstract um, the underlying network so that you know people on the edge can innovate and can do changes uh, in the middle of the day without having to wait two weeks on a change control ticket essentially. Yeah. And it was all done inside of the. The host, so the Docker host itself would have a network interface, and the idea was that whenever you deployed your container, it would just auto-tragically connect to the network and do its thing. It didn't need to have anything changed in the physical network. Right, absolutely. So we're, we've gotten very familiar with uh, you know Linux networking primitives, right? <laughs> Netlink, and and all the APIs that we really necessarily didn't necessarily know existed ten years ago because you know we were working on networking meant you worked on hardware. Um, so now it's right. networking. You work on systems. And Dave, you were doing product management, right? So you were at the wrong end of that that horse. Yeah, I got some really terrible advice early on in my career that you know product management was the best type of management to do because you had all of this responsibility and you didn't have to deal with people. Uh, and that sounded yeah sounded great, but it turned out to be terrible. Uh, <laughs> I really really didn't enjoy product management. Um, I think probably one of the big things for me was uh, it. it 
the, the company didn't really understand how product and engineering should work together. And there was always kind of a fight between engineers that wanted to do the right thing by GitHub and the community and then mm. product that wanted to do the right thing by enterprises and people that are actually writing checks. Mm. So I very quickly pivoted right back out of there into, into engineering proper and, and writing code again, which is kind of like therapy, I think. Always good to feel like you're adding value. So, uh, right. yeah. And Matt, you've uh, had an interesting stint. You've been working for a vendor developing code for them for the last, what, several years, I think? Yeah, I've been in the vendor world for five years now. So, uh, and focused primarily on automation. I mean, like, similar to Brent, like, my story is, you know, I, I felt like I was always at like a race of the most lowest level knowledge. And so, like, that started out in like system administration. <clears throat> Software development was always a part of that automating kind of my day job. And then eventually I, um, was somehow got on the wrong side uh, with my relationship with God and thought that like networking was the lowest level and the smartest place to go. So I, and now I'm stuck here. I can't get out. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, but now for the past like four or five years, I've been working with the Stackstorm open source project, uh, both writing code for that and managing that team. Um, and just really focused on network automation and, and really that kind of permeates that i mean like network automation is contextual right you're not mm. automating the network so you just have another vlan to sit there it's usually got actually some packets flowing through it for some reason okay so darren um i'm not too sure personally about what you're doing but why don't you give us a quick background about you know what's your transition from being a networking person into a, a programming what was that like yeah so i started with uh traditional network just traditional ccna um mm. Just, you know, standard working for a service provider. And from there, I transitioned into uh, being a systems engineer. And I was crazy enough to decide to go into VoIP for some strange reason. And, uh, <laughs> VoIP was <laughs> all you, the rage once upon a time. It was the Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? It was going to yeah, pay yeah. for my kid's college. Uh, it didn't, but it did uh, enable me to have to take on a workload that I couldn't manage without some sort of automation. So that's what led me into uh, programming. Um, and eventually Python, Ansible, and configuration management. So I was dancing in two worlds between uh, systems engineering and also uh, network engineering. And um, eventually that led me to uh, where I am now. So I work for a consultancy and we, we specialize in network automation. So we're um, providing the customers you know, a network automation solution to basically take their uh, their current workloads and workflows and put them into mm. um, some sort of automated solution. So uh, it's a lot of data modeling, a lot of working with open source tools, and then we leave them with, you know, an automated workflow or a, a complete automation system. Right. And so you were doing that in a voice context in that sense? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, previously, in previous life, it was voice. And then um, at some point, I decided that I wanted to get further away from users. Right. Yep. So... Uh, I left uh, left voice <laughs> and went um, always a solid career goal. Yeah, yeah. Went yeah. back into uh, working working in the WAN, and then yeah. from for a large enterprise, and then from there I got to where I am now. All right, so you escaped from the IP, the mysteries of IP telephony and the vagaries. And we're the... we're all just on this journey, this long convoluted journey to get away from on call shifts. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Man. Yeah, the yeah. on call phone taught me to run as far as I can away from it. There's a certain type of person who loves being on call, but I went into design and architecture just to get as far away from it as possible. That was my yeah. choice. You know, there's plenty of others, but yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it, when it ruins, you know, a couple of family vacations that the session border controller is on fire. Um, and you know, users can't can't log in. You immediately start to question your life decisions and yeah. make some better goals. So. Right. 
So programming for you, moving towards programming became sort of part of that goal of moving further and further away from that front end work to the back end and disappearing into the woodwork sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And also um, it, it was more so a curiosity, right? I had to start managing, you know, a fleet of servers, a fleet of uh, end user devices. And I was just one person um, oftentimes with maybe one, one or two on a team. And so we started to automate repetitive tasks. You know, it's the classic story, um, like, like Matt, automate repetitive tasks, make my life a little bit easier, and then started to dive into actually trying mm. to write some decent software. Yeah. Um, which, which is still a quest that I'm on. <laughs> well, that's kind of the kind of what we wanted to talk about here, because uh, Brent popped up the other day saying uh, he's getting really excited about Go and Rust. And as languages go, they're re- they're generally regarded as advanced, or you know the 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 people. A lot of people who talk about Rust and Go talk about it as sort of like a post Python. Once you learn, cut your chip, learn on Python, or get your chops on Python, you want to get onto a real language. So, what what brought you into the Rust environment, Brent? Why would you bother learning multiple languages when everybody else is doing Python? Yeah, and I should probably preface it with like this isn't programming language gatekeeping. Um, <laughs> I think that, that's kind of obnoxious. <laughs> like, people should just use what works, what what tool works for them, right? So if yeah. you're writing simple tooling, you know, Go, Python, it's hard to beat those because you can prototype rapidly. Uh, it's super simple to, to, to share code with other people. Um, Python's been around a really long time. So the, kind of the exact context was uh, networking. I, I, I think networking people should start exploring kind of beyond Python and my, my beef with Python. Um, uh, it's kind of a laundry list, but um, two of the top are package management um, as well as readability, right? So when yeah. you have, you get into object oriented languages, you get into inheritance, you get into imports, you get into all these, all these things that, that make it kind of tough to read other people's code. Um, so there's probably 15 different ways to do one thing in Python, whereas with Go, there's, you know, one kind of, idiomatic way to do something and it's 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 a much stricter um rule set and rust kind of takes that to the next level um, so it forces so, you to so the uh, one of the problems i used to do parallel programming back in the day very bad pearl programming but it was very idiomatic you could write it in a way that you, it was almost like a you could write a pearl in a way that no one else would ever understand it because they didn't understand your language whereas other people would write pearl in a very consistent linear well thought out way anybody could read it and it was just just this world's apart so you're sort of saying that that idea of idiomatic programming is not not sustainable in the long term well so uh so like just so go and rust have been around a long time so they've kind of been around about the same amount of time um go has become much more popular um than rust um, I think there's probably some reasons around that, um, but Rust has kind of come cropping up lately as as the new shiny programming language. Mm. Um, there's some reasons around it, um, particularly around what what's thought of as as the, it's a static checker. So it's got it's got a, a very strict compiler that mm. uh, hates you and wants to make your life miserable. But at the end of the day. It's very strict, and it's not going to. It kind of protects you from yourself. Um, so, yeah, because if you have to type, would, yeah, go. Uh, well, I would say that, like, like even the progression that we've talked about, Python, Go, Rust, um, they kind of have like 
um, different levels of magic, right? So like one things that one of the things that I really hate in programming languages is when there's a certain level of magic, like built-ins that are kind of like um, built into the actual language that do this magic thing and you can't actually like break through that wall and see what it's doing. So Python being the most uh, egregious abuse of that of the three languages because it has like a ton of built-ins that just magically do stuff and mm. uh, provides you no opportunity to be empathetic with the hardware that actually has to do something with that. Go being a lot better, but it still has like a garbage checker and it'll still allow you to do relatively dangerous things with memory that Rust just disallows you to do. <clears throat> and mm. so there's also, but there's trade-offs with that, right? So like the less magic you have access to, the less expressive you can be, right? So like I can write, uh, I can write this relatively complex um, application inside of JavaScript or Python really quickly that does like a lot of, of business logic. Um <clears throat> and yeah, it might have some warts and it might not be as performant, but generally speaking, I was able to kind of get feature A out of the door really quickly. Um, and I would be slower with with Go and a bit slower than with than Go with with Rust, but it would be more empathetic to the hardware and it would perform much, much better and it would have a lot less opportunity to kind of fall over on itself. And I wouldn't have access to kind of the composability features that I would have in Python. Mm. And so that's what, <clears throat> so my but response to- you've still got to, modules and you can still import modules and things like that. You can, yeah, 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 yeah for it's sure. It's not like but, you're missing stuff but you're talking about things like typing variables and memory mm -hmm. safe checking like, like i just want to throw everything into a giant dictionary in python and just be done with it and not have to worry about typing not have to worry about like hmm. error handling and just like i want i just want my feature to be done and like rust is kind of like no like this this can return one of three different types and you need to handle all of the cases hmm. and so and 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 that's one of the things that I appreciate appreciate about it, especially when you're trying to do, um, like more more system level, more hardware uh, empathetic things that need to be very performance. So like one of the things I'm building right now is like a mm. hobby is a game engine, right? And those things need to be incredibly performant because they're iterating over, you know, tens of thousands of objects and rendering those to a screen, right? And so like trying to do that in Python with memory that might just be spread all over the place because you have no real obvious view into how it's doing that would be harder to do than it is say in Rust. And so. My, my response to Brent when he tweeted that, like, I think network developers should move away from Python into Go and Rust, I responded with, I don't know if that's a good idea, which is kind of the birth of this whole podcast. <laughs> and my only response to that is like, like when it comes to a business context, when I'm actually getting paid like currency in exchange for my services, like for me, it kind of boils down to like, what am I actually being asked to do and making sure that I'm using like the correct tool to like the to to do the right thing right so like if i'm being asked to do a feature like usually there's some business need for that feature and if i can pretty much every time uh in like a networking context often those things don't need to perform at like sub millis like you don't need that vlan to get on that like switch milliseconds faster than you know it was if it was in python and so that was like i think from a software development perspective, if you're going to actually take that career path, you stand a lot to gain from understanding what's happening at the lower levels and understanding like how to be empathetic to the hardware while still being able to compose at like a more scripting language level. And so that was the, that was kind of my response to Brent was effectively just like, I don't know that especially like what network engineers are trying to do in their day job really coincides with needing to learn Rust. Even though I think that knowledge is valuable, I don't know that it's like, necessarily beneficial to your day job <laughs> yeah the way i look at it right is that python's a hammer like you can and everything is a nail literally you can do anything you want in that language without too much training too much effort too much time spent 
But my worry is for people that are writing automation, when this becomes business critical, when this becomes something which is more than just a bunch of scripts, like there is a massive benefit to actually learning things like Go and, and Rust that are going to give you something which is going to be easier for you to maintain in the long term, although like it's going to take you longer to write um, up front. So it's like a, a trade-off between like speed of prototyping and speed of getting to the goal versus saving yourself effort in the long term. And often it's hard to tell like what things are actually going to stick. Like I can't tell you how many things that I've like thought quite a lot about, like making sure that it was architected correctly and was its most performant. And I was using like the data structures that I was using correctly so that it could be as performant as possible. And then like nobody used it and it like just sat around and then went away. And then like the thing that like I spent 17 seconds on and didn't care. And like, it, like literally it was just scratching the itch that I had people's like use all the time. Right. <clears throat> like there's some of my code in that, in that particular instance, there's some of my code still that exists today that I'm like, Oh gosh, that was like a prototype. Like, why does that, like, why is that still in existence? Right. I, I guess I'm coming out overly cautious because of, of coming from a world of tech debt. Like uh, the my my last role, like we, we were releasing all of Docker's stuff, and literally it was cobbled together with like make files and bash scripts, and not even written any programming language at all. It was just like it it happened. It organically grew, and now it's like the lifeblood of the of the organization. Um, so I, I think you know the advice would be if you can if if you can look forward and maybe just like. Take, take your time over it, pick something which you're going to be happy with long term, then just like do that from the outset because your future self will thank you for saving yourself like some sort of dumb concurrency or memory error that you're going to end up getting paged at like 4 a.m. on a Saturday morning for. And um, we, I mean, like there's got to be so many lines of code that I've written thinking like, I'll rip this out really quickly. I, I'm mm -hmm. just going to write this for now. It's fine. And then like next week I'll take care of it. And then like four years later, it's like, Oh yeah, there's that to do comment that I yeah, never like, addressed. The sign of a good programmer is how many to do's, you know, fix this later or, you know, you got here, fix this are in the, in their lines of code. One thing I wanted to add too, was I think uh, it's one of the, um, pulls for me for learning Rust also was just learning why someone picked that language, right? What is the what are the use cases? What are the needs that they're attempting to solve? So if you look at like Prometheus and these type of tools that are collectors, they're written in in Go or some sort of compiled language. Why was that used as opposed to Python? So it starts to help me to see, you know, what what trade-offs and what reasons people chose these different tools for. And it helps me think of things differently. So the next time I approach something that needs to be a little bit more performant, it, it may lead me to uh, those languages as opposed to, you know, rewriting it in Python again and again. That was one yeah, of the I would, I would totally things. agree with that, especially for people who like are professional developers, like we get paid, like mm -hmm. our exchange of time for currency is by virtue of making code and writing software. Like you, all of you guys should be writing stuff in C, not necessarily like writing like applications in C that you're going to ship, but like just so that you can understand like what the hardware is doing, because like that level of knowledge, like um, I, I think earlier I mentioned, like I felt like I, my whole career I was always like at a race for like the most basic level of knowledge. <clears throat> and so like, that's why I've done like projects and assembly and stuff. It's because like, I've always wanted to understand like what is actually going on in its most core level. Because then when I go up to Python, like I, 
it's not like completely ignorant of what all the translation layers are happening in between that really abstract code and what's happening on the CPU. And so I think the question is, and what's most relevant is like, what is the like demarcation for like a network engineer, which is funny, like how cyclical this like job market is like for a while there, like network engineers were sysadmins who were writing Perl and stuff anyway. And then like, you know, Cisco happened. And so it was like, oh, everybody needs to just be like a CLI person who understands this one CLI and one set of specs for all this hardware. And, and now I feel like it's coming back full circle, much to like Brent's point earlier, where it's like, these people are kind of like, well, actually, I don't want to just like go configure a VLAN on 75 switches. I want to make computers do what they're good at. So I feel like we're kind of coming back into that world now. And so like the level of low level knowledge that I would put on somebody who's like, like exchanging their time for making packets flow, the level of knowledge I would require of them out of like the lowest level of like what's happening in a scripting language when it actually hits the CPU, I feel like as I have a different like demarcation of where that level is than somebody who's like trying to uh, often. So like, often the difference between like somebody who's getting paid to write software is they're actually creating abstractions for hardware. And then people consume those abstractions in some way, right? Whether that be um, libraries that people are using to make more composability things for uh, users or end users or an application that an end user is actually consuming. Often we're building interfaces into hardware. And I feel like a network engineer should have those interfaces built for them and consume those to, to actually compose the things that they need to get their job done. And to me, like, needing that to be like at a monolithic level, super performant isn't as, as important as making sure that they understand the implications of the networking side, which is an entirely different uh, set of knowledge base that you would need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a transition that happens. You kind of commented to it. You, you go from being a network operator, network engineer to becoming a network developer. And then if, if, if that's your trajectory and desire, and it all comes from you wanting to, to, use and then create and maybe extend more powerful tools. And if you're making that transition and, you know, for me, somebody like me that wasn't classically trained in computer science, um, these, these languages that deal with more hardware and more memory allocation and uh, that are more um, low level, they give you that ability. I mean, a perfect example is like stacking the heap. I did, until I really started digging into to go and rust, I really had, when I would hear people mention that, didn't have much of a reference for what that really meant. And then by looking into these tools and digging into the documentation, you end up backfilling a lot of, like you mentioned, that low-level knowledge. You end up backfilling it as a byproduct of, of curiosity and trying to, to improve your job. Yep. Yeah. And I, I am very pro anybody in technology going on that journey because that's what I've done. Like the, in fact, the way that I've like progressed my career has often been through like taking on like overly ambitious side projects that required yeah. me to go to a deeper level. And so like, I would never try to dissuade somebody from doing that. It's just like in a business context. So like as a software manager, one of the things that I always talk about with my guys is like, uh, the economics of a, of an engineer. Right. So like, uh, (laughs) I feel like we've probably always uh, like all like known somebody who's like, I just spent like three weeks, like rewriting, you know, a B or C feature. And it's like, okay, but you were supposed to like do D and it's like, well, yeah, but now I read it A, B, and C and introduced a whole bunch of more bugs. Aren't you happy? And I'm like, well, actually, no. <laughs> like, and so like just allocating your time, like in a business context, it's like I'm, my job is like to make sure that the network is is up and automated in a way that's meaningful and, and beneficial to my company. Like maybe I don't need to write that in Rust because 
that's not necessarily beneficial to what I need to do. Not to mention that there's a ton of libraries that enable you to be way more uh, kind of expressive and quick to deliver features on the Python side than there is in Rust, just as far as like tooling is concerned. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's an arrow in the quiver, right? And, and when you when you need to get something rapidly prototyped, you're not going to reach for the most difficult, you know, the most difficult programming language um, at all. And, but you need to know that so that you don't spend, you know, ten ten days, as you mentioned, rewriting, trying to rewrite something in Rust that you don't need to, or Go, or any other language that you don't need to. Yeah, I, I think there's also kind of a question of, of competency because th this is something else that I've kind of stumbled upon is that we say, oh man, like Node or, or Python or JavaScript is really quick because it's really easy to prototype that. And sure, I mean, those languages might be a little bit friendlier, but at the same time, if like, I don't know, maybe I spend all of my time in Rust, I could probably implement those things just as quickly uh, if that was my, if that was my, primary language, right? If this is where I said, all right, for these reasons, I'm going to pick this, I'm going to learn everything I can about it and do everything this way, then over time, those efficiency gains of trying to use something which is a bit more scrappy will just disappear. I mean, you know, it, it's always nice to have scripting languages there as a crutch, but if I can write it in Rust, then why, why wouldn't I? Um, so may, well, maybe another for, way of looking at it. I feel like right? sometimes you like look up and you're like, why am I writing a library for GitHub when I could have just imported GitHub in Python? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's probably the differentiation is is the, the newer languages aren't going to have the, the libraries that something like Python's going to have. I kind of look at Rust. So five years ago, six years ago, when we started with Go, um, there weren't a lot of libraries out there, right? So a lot of it, if you wanted to do something, you had to go and kind of roll it from roll it from hand. Um, now there's tons of libraries out there for Go. There's not a lot of libraries for Rust. Um, but I think as the popularity, I mean, if you look at the popularity of programming languages, I think Rust is around, I've looked at it before this, around 31. So it's right behind, you know, right behind, I think, COBOL. And, uh, you know, right ahead, the, the language in front of it is RPG, which I don't even know what that is. It sounds pretty cool, though, because it sounds like... <laughs> Yeah, Pick up my dice. Yeah, we're all good. <laughs> like, have you been wanting to blow up your network? Do I have a language for you? <laughs> right. Let's pause the podcast for a moment to tell you about today's sponsor, Thousand Eyes. You like it or not, your organization is embracing the cloud, and that might be great for the business, but for network architects and IT ops teams, it can be a service delivery nightmare. Why? Well, you're depending on cloud providers, ISPs, and third-party apps for business-critical services. And even though you don't control those networks, you do own the service delivery, which means if performance is bad, people are going to come looking for you. And this is where Thousand Eyes can help. You can take advantage of Thousand Eyes agents across the cloud within your enterprise all the way down to the endpoint. These agents actively monitor network behavior and topologies and how they affect application performance. With Thousand Eyes, you can correlate multiple layers of performance data from L2 to L7, including BGP routing and DNS, to quickly identify problem areas and dramatically reduce your mean time to repair. You can pinpoint the root cause of device faults, congestion, Wi-Fi quality, DDoS attacks, and more. And you don't have to keep all this intelligence to yourself. You can easily share events, metrics, and dashboards with your vendors and customers so that you can collaborate to resolve problems faster. Now, Thousand Eyes also aggregates anonymized real-time data from a collective data set so they can generate insights about large-scale issues across the internet, including their severity and breadth, as well as likely root cause. Now, if all that sounds good to you, here's a special offer for Packet Pushers listeners. Try Thousand Eyes for free at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. And while you're there, get yourself a free Thousand Eyes t-shirt. That's thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. Manage every network like it's your own. Thousand Eyes. Thrive in a connected world. 
And now, back to the podcast. What about from the point of view of um, library, security and library integrity? We've seen a number of side channel attacks where people take over the libraries and instead of just importing a library, you're actually importing malware or something wrong. Is that a concern for you? La, guys? la, 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 la. I know the festivist has already passed, but... Uh... <laughs> So, so one of the beauties of Rust um, and one of the pains of Go and Python is going to be package management. So it's really easy to import packages and manage packages with Rust, but nothing fixes. You know, you might be importing a dozen libraries into your project. Well, those libraries are all using a dozen libraries each, right? So you kind of you have no idea what's what's happening down the line. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an incredibly hard. The reason why I did the like la 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 is because like. The, the the industry hasn't come up with a appropriate response to that yet. Uh, there's well, there like static no, analysis stuff. Yeah. Like there's static analysis stuff that's trying to look for common patterns that we know of and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But it's at the end of the day, it's like kind of like it's making people who like have to assume the risk feel better about the risk that they're going to be naturally acquiring anyway. And so, again, the industry hasn't come up with a good solution to that. And it, uh, there's some there's some things that you can do to make things like that are obvious take care of. Like in fact, GitHub they do a great thing where they'll like evaluate like your dependencies of a project and just be like, hey, this is vulnerable. Um, but if there's like an intentionally nefarious package that um, you aren't doing some kind of check on to to like make sure that that's not there, there's it is what it is. There's no way to protect them. Yeah, I was just wondering if, you know, like not using libraries and forcing people to um, write their own is both a positive and a negative. It's a positive in the sense that you're on the hook, but then I wouldn't want to be writing a Yang module to import Yang. I mean, that's just scut work doing that over and over. In in my experience, right, there are good libraries and there are bad libraries. And quite often, uh, we will lean for a library in case of a shortcut. Somebody's already done this, great, I'll just use that one Mm. without really understanding the economics behind it. Who's maintaining it? Who's actually going to show up and fix bugs? And have I just now coupled myself to this and now, oh, crap. Um, I mean, oh, dear, Uh, I'm going to have to go and fix stuff here um, Mm. now. so, you know, having the capability of writing stuff yourself is good. Um, so I guess back to, in, in terms of vulnerabilities, though, I think the big problem that we have uh, in, in software is the it's layers, right? And that we've got all of these libraries that rely on all of this stuff, uh, things like cryptography and SSL. And guess what? That was all written in C, uh, open source. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's scary bugs in there. Uh, because the language is the type of language that will allow you to shoot yourself in the foot. Uh, and when a, when something here happens at that low level, then there's this cascade effect of that suddenly leaking out all over the place into libraries galore. And that's where it gets really scary and really hard to manage. And for those type of things, it's not really plausible to rewrite those yourself. Mm. However... What's cool about Rust is that there are a lot of people that are kind of interested in looking at some of these things, like SSL, like a lot of the lower-level functionality that is a bit janky, yep. and coming up with alternatives. When the, in particular good. about Rust, like it, it, uh, it does a lot to make sure that you can't have um, some of those memory-related vulnerabilities, right? So, um, deallocating a piece of memory and something else gets puts there get gets placed in that memory space, you can't access that in Rust. Like it's going to actually either not compile or fail out like automatically from the small runtime that it has. Um, But back to like the whole dependency thing, like I'm going to say something a little bit controversial, which is that... (laughs) Everybody, everybody... (laughs) 
I know. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> Brent, hold on to your butts. <laughs> business, um, good business trumps good technology 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get that that's weird coming from a guy who really appreciates good technology, but I can tell you, um, a number of companies who have really terrible, um, technical implementations of things who have incredible multi-billion dollar businesses behind them. And I can tell you about failed startups who had incredible technology. And so like, if you have to choose between the two, you have to, you need to choose good business because there's only one that actually gives you a runway to fix some of the yeah, technical that yeah, yeah. created. And yeah. so when it comes to like, whether or not you should use libraries, like you have to make that as a business decision, I think like yeah. what amount of risk are you willing to take on for the certain amount of velocity that you'll gain out of that? Yeah, I, I've um, I've been tossing around an idea from how I would handle working, you know, if I worked in the real world, but even as a, as a business owner, you know, that you've got to have a set of principle. You have what I call a principle stack and you have a stack. People talk about having a set of principles and then trying to treat them all as, you know, I wouldn't do something dishonest. I wouldn't do something, you know, whatever. The reality is that if you got paid enough, you would do something dishonest and you would, right? And so you, what you're actually saying is that you have a stack of principles and at the top is I need money. If I need more money, and I got, had to be dishonest to do that, you might not choose to do that. So you have a somewhere deeper, you know, somewhere further down the stack of towards the not quite so as important as, you know, health, money, emotional stability, you know, blah, blah, blah. The further down the – so down the bottom is you say, I want to be as honest and have integrity, but you can only do that if you have money and a place to live, right? It's very difficult to have integrity in the face of some problems. And so that sort of business over technology thing is what I call a principal stack. You have to believe that – Yes, I want to be the best technologist I can be to do it in the most pure way. But as you say, business is always more important. You can do the best technology you can with the available business uh, you you can make from it, right? So if you yeah, want when those trade-offs, when you don't properly treat those trade-offs, you have unhealthy situations, right? So either like, like the in the most ideal situation, you have good technology matched with good business, right? Where those trade-offs are kind of living in some sort of symbiotic relationship. Um, but like, like the engineer in me wants to open source every bit of code that I write, right? There's something about the like kind of liberty about that 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 I like, but that's that doesn't that doesn't coexist well with reality which is like at the end of the day like i get paid money that money doesn't come from like people just being like i really like your code and slap (laughs) me on the back and being like you know i guess if i had a patreon or soundcloud (laughs) but uh (laughs) but i don't right i get i i i am exchange i exchange my time for money because i write software and they use that software and sell it to people and that, and you have to understand that relationship and then live within those constraints, much to what you were saying, like do the best that you can within those constraints. Yeah. And, and that's something people need to think about that principle stack thing. Um, I've been trying to write mine down, you know, like if you put, you know, the point is you can have all the honesty and integrity you like, but if you're starving and you haven't got any, you know, you know, or you, got health insurance to pay or whatever it is it's it's actually a very difficult issue so um i guess one of the things i also want to talk about i think all of you have been involved in the open source movement at some level or another you've had to make decisions uh probably within your commercial organizations about what code you give away you know you put on github and that gives you a good feeling but it also generates some exposure for your business i guess is the other side sometimes people discover the rest of you about that it's a bit like blogging for programmers except it's yeah there's a there's a lot of 
myths out there about what open source does for you. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder, like Dave, I know you've wrestled with this particularly. Maybe you want to have a stab at the at, at outlining the the challenges there. Yeah, I think the the real challenge is understanding what you mean by open source, because I, I guess our definition has kind of got very woolly over time. Um, it, it, initially, it was all right. Here is my source code, and in addition, oh, you can use this for free, and there are no warranties, and we're not going to come after you with patent problems and all of this other stuff. Let's all hack on this together and be happy. Um, however, um, it, it depends how engaged you want to be. Like open source doesn't come for free. You you can dump a library out there, and great. Like if uh, you're the only ones that use it, that's fine. Uh, you, you maintain control. If other people want to use it and other people want to collaborate, that's when things get a little more difficult for you because that's when you can like start if to Amazon wants to fork it. Yeah. Amazon wants to fork <laughs> it, right? Like, look at look at Elasticsearch, right? And and Amazon's Elasticsearch distri distribution um, and various <laughs> things that can happen like that. Like uh, the the whole open source licensing space has kind of got very very weird. We've kind of gone well, away from really software considered they never really considered um, what would happen if companies could come along and just wholesale take away your code and then monetize it better than you can yourself. The assumption right. always yeah. was that you would have to come back to the project to get updates mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But Amazon's become so large, I guess, that it can actually just take the entire project and then bootstrap the entire project internally and take it away. Well, yeah. and, it's, and it's the consumption model, right? So, like, if you look fundamentally, like, what Elasticsearch is selling versus what Amazon is selling, they're just entirely different. Mm. Elasticsearch is trying to sell you support for this thing that's freely available, and Amazon's mm. trying to sell you it as a service, right? Yeah. And so, like, they're just fundamentally different business models, and honestly, like, one is more appealing to enterprises. Obviously, like, enterprises mm. want support where it's not available to them as a service, but if it's available as a service, they also get support for that as well. And mm. so, it's like, oh, I, re I reduce my operational cost. And I reduce, or, and I um, roll my support cost into that. Why wouldn't I consume it in that manner? And that's what kind of Elastic's beef was with that. And that's that's some like a newer paradigm that we haven't seen. Like, yeah, we've never. I mean, we've never seen IBM or HPE or Cisco just completely go in and take you know MySQL or any of the open source projects and then repackage them and try and resell them. Now, admittedly, most of those companies are pretty short-sighted. They don't have the sort of long-term view that AWS is taking of the market, and nor do they have the business talent to be able to organize a whole parcel of engineers and actually execute on that sort of vision. I mean... That said, though, it is incredible to learn how much Oracle makes on, on MySQL licenses. It's like, wait, I've never paid for that. Uh, oh, enterprises, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite one was I, l I looked at an article just before Christmas, and AWS is trying to say, "We're not, uh, we're not taking open source software. We're not just exploiting it for products. We're not. We're honest. We're good people." And and I've noticed recently that AWS is suddenly making a bigger effort to say which open source projects it's getting involved in. So the perception that mm -hmm. AWS is um, not a community player and not a participant is actually widespread and, mm -hmm. in my opinion, justifiable. But and, and weaponizing open source is like an old trope, right? Like that's been around as long as open source has been around. And honestly, like, you know, Mongo and Elastic have made pretty good revenue, but there's really only like everybody's trying to be the next Red Hat and there's only one like example of a Red Hat. And so like while Mongo... 
and while uh, Elastic have had you know good success, like sustainable success, they haven't been able to like reach the same scale as somebody like a Red Hat, and that's I think part and parcel of like some of the like no. idealism that's wrapped around open source. I think the problem here is that everybody wants to be a billionaire, and like I'm looking at the guy who develops Curl. He's just one person coordinating a team of people who contribute a small amount, but basically his full-time job is writing the code for Curl, and he's doing it on 100000 a year. He doesn't expect to set up a billion-dollar company, right, and sell shares and get investors and, you know, employ 5,000 people to do Curl. For every example of Curl, though, we can give you an example of, like, OpenSSL, where, like, it had almost no visibility and funding yeah. up until the point where Heartbleed happened, and then it was like, oh, maybe we should fund this thing that's literally imported into all things ever. Right. The, the, the economics of open source just make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Things that underpin our entire, you know, IT ecosystem are just completely underfunded, run by, you know, a guy in a garage or yeah. a girl in a garage with just a great idea and, you know, just want to hack on something. A passion fun. and a commitment and, a, and their right. lives change and, and they get sick or they have children or, you know, they had they suddenly decide that drinking wine and chasing after a suitable life partner might be more interesting than actually, you know, being a hermit in a carriage. Yeah. Yeah. And or just making like a decent living wage. And so like, <laughs> yeah. like the, uh, so many, like it is rare for an open source project to exist without some sort of corporate sponsorship. <clears throat> it is rare for it to be able to, mm -hmm. to survive long-term without corporate sponsorship. Um, because like open source projects, like almost by nature, like don't earn revenue. Um, unless there's some kind of interesting situation where there's patrons who have decided to fund that project, they don't earn revenue directly. And so like you need corporate sponsors who actually put development hours into these projects to keep them going and keep them surviving. And that's one of the things like the, the kind of <clears throat> having run an, a larger open source project, I can't tell you how many people like in good, like, honestly say like i want to be involved in your project i want to write this code and it's like awesome here's some ways you can get involved and it's just like 14 years later it's like i really want to get involved it's like dude shut up <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they, they have to they have to ride that fine line too because once once a corporate sponsor comes in and they they start to they need you to develop things for you know, the, their product, right, to, to help with their business and their business interests. And then the open source project, it has the, the unfortunate, um, it has a responsibility, but it also has sometimes the unintended outcome of starting to shift its feature set to that business need. And it, it, inevitably, at some point, you're going to piss somebody off. And it's <laughs> yeah. probably going to piss off the the, you know, the open source contributors rather than the, the enterprise that funds, you know, your development. Yeah, that's the challenge. Is when, uh, and this is particularly a problem with Chinese companies because when they give you money, they think they own you. And if they get involved in your open source project, they have um, the perspective that they should be able to get a return on that investment. They don't see that as a gift or a participation, you know, or, you know, uh, uh, paying for value already extracted. They see that as a payment for future value to be gained. And there are cultural challenges around open source and enterprises have the same problem. They go like, oh, I just put, you know, you know 20 programmers on this open source project. Why am I not, you know, what am I getting back for this? And, yeah. and you're going like, that's, yeah, I'm sure the economics are gray. Like it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation between like these 20 engineers salary enable us to sell this multi-billion dollar product. Like that's not on the abacus when that equation's done. Because <laughs> um, I remember with that, Open Daylight, it was like, 
at some point Cisco had 400 programmers allocated, 400 headcount engaged around it, or was that OpenStack? But can you really put a price on distracting the entire rest of the networking world for that long? (laughs) 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 Nice. You went there. Thanks, man. (laughs) So so I I think all that, uh, all of that, so the hard part of the hard part of open source is the maintenance of it, right? Any of us can put together something that's shiny and new and, and does something neat. Maintaining it, I mean, so when we talk about Red Hat, Red Hat, in my opinion, is successful because they do maintain they, they do the heavy lifting in open source projects. They pick a handful that are already out there, they support it, and they maintain it like they've been doing with the kernel for years. Um, when it comes to like the disruptive nature of open source, I think the second that the incumbents see the threat to their business model is the second that embrace and, embrace and extinguish comes into play. It's so easy to come into an open source project and cr- create complete chaos, and then and it basically breaks breaks the entire movement. I mean, I would argue we saw that to some degree with OpenStack. I would argue we're starting to see that with Kubernetes and particularly service mesh, right? Um, do we really need more service meshes out there or do we need to coalesce around one of them and, and actually maintain it? Right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, the challenge with service meshes is they're so easy to make that a, a medium-sized startup in a particular technology space can actually make their own. Uh, and, and they are because instead of paying for it, they're so used to not paying a vendor to give them a solution and that forces us to coalesce, is it's like, who who released a service mesh the other day? It was like Slack or one of the chat programs and they had their own, built their own service mesh. And I'm going like, what? Like the other 75 didn't, well, didn't do it for you? Or, you know? well, uh, and Slack, I think, I think Nebula. Nebula, yeah. I will never forget but, the first conversation I had about service mesh. Somebody was trying to explain it to me. I was like, but what is it doing for me? And they were like, I could explain it again. I was like, but what is it doing for me? Like, <laughs> like we're doing that already. Like, well, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think that also kind of, that highlights the, the challenges for enterprise open source software sales too, right? Because you're going to companies, here's all these features. The company might need 10% of those features. Are they going to buy your product or are they just going to roll that 10% and be done with it? I think there's there's also a, another kind of darker undertone to all of this, which is uh, not invented here syndrome, which yes. just seems to <laughs> rear its ugly head when anybody has a reasonably sized engineering team where they'll go take a look at all the service meshes and they'll be like, well, you know, this one's got all the features, but I mean, it wasn't exactly, I'd, we'd have done it differently. So then somebody you had to define the config in JSON instead right? of YAML. And we wanted and... YAML. Yeah. So we wrote it yeah. differently. Yeah. And then we open sourced it and we make a big deal about it because it looks really good on our engineering blog. And we can incubate a project into the CNCF. And like, oh my God, this is amazing. We're big open source companies now. We can attract greater engineering talent and we can show the rest of the world how smart we are. Mm. Um, Okay, let's dog food that a little bit and say, uh, oh, we want to rewrite the software in Rust instead of Go or in Python. <laughs> That's the other one. Yeah, yeah we've written it in Python, but, talk, but but nobody nobody's doing Python anymore. I think the, 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 the kind of undercurrent on all of this is just like how complex the human element is. I mean, like even we were like joking about waterfall versus a, waterfall versus agile earlier, like all of that is like trying to handle the inherent complexity in humans, right? Like that's the real problem we're trying to all handle. And 
this this is the same as true about open source. Like if people actually made rational like valuations of things and made rational decisions based on those things, then like sponsoring popular open source projects wouldn't be a problem because companies would be like, oh, well, I made seven billion dollars on this. I should give, you know, a pro the proportion of the software base that relies on open SSL to them so that they can continue to develop it. And it's just like, meanwhile, none of that's actually happening. Yeah, it is a challenge. It's always difficult. That whole service mesh has got me completely beat. I mean, just um, and it's such a it's such a repeat of what we've already done in traditional in you know, what I call legendary networking. Legendary is my general term for anything that we have today. If we call it legacy, people get upset, so I call it legendary. But you know, if you want to do packet it. capture in a in a container based environment, you can't do packet capturing on a port. You can't use RSpan because you don't know where the container is. So. Well, we can emulate the network by putting an overlay in, and then we can configure it to do packet capture. And you're like, well, okay, you know, but you, there's but lots. You could. You could. <laughs> you could also implement it in the NIC, you know, in an agent in the in the network in Linux. You could do that too, you know. It's like, which of those is better? Uh, and my other one is watching, uh, I sat through a three-hour presentation on the complexities of Istio and how to troubleshoot a, an SSL certificate problem. And I was looking at it, and I'm going like, and, and I, I walked away going, like, I can see why you did that, but I'm also sitting there shaking my head and saying, why aren't you troubleshooting this in the container itself? It was utterly baffling to me that you would use a service mesh um, to do this stuff. And it's like uh, the whole thing struck me that it's like people who did containers never thought about distributed systems. That must have been, that must have been part one of part 20. But until we, like, until we have like a sane way of like managing complexity, which I see no into like we're just going to keep reliving these same tropes and and part of that's fine like it's why i still have a job and see a job in my future um, and so like you know writing generation two of whatever is going to be service meshes is probably what's going to employ me in like 10 years <laughs> yes <laughs> among other things yeah i mean we we've already got you know openstack v2 which is kubernetes so you know maybe we can have like Kubernetes v2, and that'd be something else. Uh, be, well, uh, Kubernetes v2 Kubernetes. is Kubernetes v2, because we already had <laughs> Kubernetes v1. It went yeah. by the name OpenStack. Yeah. It'll, be, it'll be serverless Kubernetes. Do you guys do much with serverless? Do you anybody have a quick vision on that? We're reaching the, sort of where we want to be wrapping up the show. And so I see a lot of people banging on about serverless. And I'm sort of of the view that serverless has its place, but it doesn't replace containers, <laughs> which don't replace VMs, which don't replace bare metal, I think. I think you're going to end up I with mean, all of them. Serverless is a, and it, it's all about composing business logic. That's what every, like that is what software developers do. We build business logic. And so like things that allow me to be more expressive in how I create that business logic, I am all for. So I built a, an application. My wife runs a not-for-profit uh, here in the city that we're in. And a classic developer engineer mindset and classic like enterprise situation. There was a, a company who was like, we can do everything. You, you, you don't even have to ask us. I can already do everything. And it costs all of the money. And so she paid all of the money and it did none of the things. So she took all of that money back. And I was like, well, I'm an engineer, so I can build this. But actually what's crazy about that is like using serverless and a lot of the like the the composability features that Amazon has access to, I was literally able to build that in a weekend and it serviced all of her needs. And I would not have been able to do that without serverless. So like things like that I'm for, but you can't like not everything maps to that model. Hmm. It's not a replacement, as you mentioned, for containers. I've seen 
database in a serverless application. It, I don't think it's that's the place for it, but I do think it augments, you know, certain things. I like the description that they use as function as a service, right? I don't care about where it runs, what dependencies I need to bundle up, but I just need this particular function to run, you know, when when a certain condition is met. So I've I've used AWS Lambda, I think it's Google Cloud Run, those things for those specific purposes. When you try to to backfill or, or pigeonhole and add, you know, stateful application logic into it, I think you run into issues. I don't yeah. think it's going to be the silver bullet for that. Well, ever. you're supposed to use the cloud service, you know, their database or their permanent storage and use like a, well, you know, an Elasticsearch instance or whatever it is, the databases that they provide. So your serverless pulls to another service. But that's just such a massive lock-in. So if you start using, you know, AWS's RDBMS, you know, uh, RDS database service, and you decide that actually getting off AWS so I can have some pricing power and, you know, move it from one cloud to another, you're just never going to because those environments are so di- so divergent. There's no standards. There's no compatibility. But again, and, like business know. trumps technology, right? Like if my startup's going to fail before I can like make my app run on both GCP and Azure. Then it should or- probably fail. <laughs> it shouldn't. If I can make it succeed by by go to market and like time to market by actually just developing it on one, that's yeah. better to me than it failing because I was wasting I time think, trying to. I, make it I personally too. think we've seen the end of blitz scaling. This whole idea that you pour money into a business to make it scale as quickly as possible to this find it. And um, I think the failure of WeWork and now a bunch of other businesses where they've been overfunded. And that uh, bash or bash through, I think so many businesses have shown that that just doesn't work. And I think we're going to see investors much more slow down and say, all right, well, I'll give you less money, but you've got twice as long to see if it works. Let's figure out if we can actually get to revenue. Yeah, Yeah, I think that goes into technology decisions too, right? If you you aren't overly funded, you aren't just pouring in money, you have to make technology decisions based on things that are tried and true, right? Mm. You don't need to use the shiny new thing, you know, serverless for everything, package my Django app into 17 containers in a serverless front end when you can just run it on a VM, right? Our business needs to run. I need to get it up. I mean, use EC2 or whatever and, and get it up. It's and like running. running WordPress in a container. There's no point because right. WordPress is a permanent thing. It's not a, an ephemeral come and go unless you've particularly got a need to scale it up to handle millions of views per day. And for some reason, you know, but even so, you can put a CDN in front of it. And then, you know, there's a whole lot of reasons why you just yeah, go on, Dave. Right. You, you can choose from like a dozen hosted service providers, right? And yeah, that, right. that's the benefit. Why why bother? Why do I need to run it myself when I can pay somebody else five bucks a month and it gets mm. the job done? And I think that's that type of common sense has mm. been misplaced, right? With the way that we've been building applications. Yes. Everything needs to be a microservice. Everything needs to scale to web scale and be Google because uh, we need to be Google. And in reality, I think we, we circled around on this earlier, like some of the top four websites, the monolith, monolithic applications that you know are not microservices but they scale yeah surprise like yeah, <laughs> yeah. there was a quote i saw on on twitter it was it was uh someone said how will you scale to a hundred thousand users and the response was happily yeah, we'll figure it out when we get there <laughs> yeah, yeah. but I, yeah, think, I think it was about with a with a uh, nuke with yeah, an yeah. intel nuke is how we'll scale a hundred thousand great problem to have you know yeah. I think about six years ago, uh, Dave and I had a slide deck uh, pitching it out of BC, and on there we had, um, you know, hi- networking for hyperscale. The guys like, 
what do you, what do you mean? What do you need Google scale? How many people need that? We're like, Oh, right. That's a good point. We'll take that off the slide though. <laughs> we kept it on there because exactly. buzzwords, right? Yeah. Buzzwords are great, but still. Yeah. There's like this, this worshiping of, of the cloud providers. And, and so, you know, wh- whatever they say goes, but at the end of the day, it doesn't even fit your business. Probably not. That's the thing, right? Like coming up with a good engineering solution to something is also like doing it in context and like solving the same problems or solving similar problems at a like normal enterprise scale, the same way that Google or Amazon or or Facebook is solving those problems is actually a bad engineering solution to that. It sounds like you guys over the years of being a program have become much more in touch with the business than you might've been as network engineers. Is that a valid statement? Well, Dave and I also did stints as product managers, so. (laughs) <laughs> that, that that spoiled us forever, right? We we can't go back. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can say for me definitely because what ends up happening is you're exposing your tools to most of the time, right? When you develop an application, you got to expose it to someone, and you're exposing either the network function or service to you up level it a bit, right? So it has to be useful for a business manager, program owner, something. So it does actually. It w- it was a byproduct I didn't see coming, but it puts you more in tune with the business need because someone's using it as opposed to just get an order for a VLAN and you, you configure it. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point too, because what networking 10 years ago, you didn't have alternatives, right? You you had this, the scaling of, well, I'm running out of bandwidth or I'm running out of capacity on my firewall. So now I need to I need to guess at what the capacity of my firewall is going to be in four years. So I'm going to buy 10x capacity and blow my budget for this year. Mm. Well, when you start taking things to, you know, this disaggregation of whether it's services or just networking in general, um, by virtue of north-south traffic or east-west traffic flows, um, it, it starts to decompose into into a much more kind of linear um, kind of um, purchasing um, mm. Yeah, I think as the program is, you get closer to the business because you're getting closer to the use case. The use case is handed to you in the programming design. And when you're a product manager, you're getting budgeted according to what, you know, and um, part of my transition from being a network engineer to doing what I'm doing now is where I'm focused much more on technology analysis and business analysis is you, you start thinking about what business wants and you start becoming more tolerant. And But I think that reflects a wider transition in infrastructure, IT infrastructure. Is we used to be like way over there. Nobody could speak to us because we spoke this weird language. And, you know, 10 years ago when we started out, we didn't actually – the business people didn't talk to us at all because they didn't even know what we did or why we did it. They just sort of said, here's some money, just – Go away and do something, you know, make email or something. And uh, and 10 years later, digital transformation is changing the way everybody works. And so, you know, we're all becoming programmers to some extent. Even if, you're, even if you don't write Python code, you're going to be in front of a GUI console clicking stuff that does automations. You're going to be configuring workflows in a graphical interface and, and they will run. And there'll be, even if you're not cutting Python code or, you know, learning Rust because you're... I think you're must be a masochist to learn Rust, but okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think also too, like the IT professionals, like went through a phase of like kind of leveling up on on their awareness at least of like the business side as well. I remember um, uh, when like kind of everything was pushing towards like white box servers and switches and stuff like that. And like, we, we all had this moment where we thought the emperor had no clothes and like come to find out it's like, Oh, like building operating operating systems and stuff. We should pay people for that because that's hard. Mm. And so like largely like the, the, 
the broader like enterprise side of the market didn't switch over to um, white box solutions because it was like, oh, we figured out that we <laughs> See, would spend way not, more money. That's not entirely true. What I'm consistently seeing is there are people out there doing white box, even developing their own network operating systems at various levels. I, I came across one today. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes just because it's just so um, at phalix.net. And they basically... Felix? Yeah. I'll put a link into the chat room. Um, these people put a GoBGP on a Microtech box, cut their own NOS, and that's how they run their hosting because they just didn't want to go and buy new routers and spent waste money. And all they're doing is using open source projects to do all the stuff. Um, so I, I, haven't, I, think- I haven't like witnessed that adoption at scale. Like, and even people who are doing white box, I see them like purchasing the operating system most of the time. Yeah. I, um, and that's my point is, but the people who are doing that aren't being given a million marketing dollars to go out and tell everybody about it. They're sure. not appearing on podcasts, talking about it or writing blog posts that, turn up on, you know, the major news site saying, this customer adopted white box, because that is not a cool story. That is a, <laughs> you know, that is a t- story of hard work and, and, and right. effort, and it's not incredibly glamorous at all. Some, you know, I, And I think some of that effort is part of the operators, like, becoming more clueful on, like, where that value actually was. Like, we, we learned pretty quickly that, like, okay, what we were paying Cisco for, what we were paying Juniper for, what we were paying all these customers, like, companies for was actually the software that they were writing that, that coexist with this hardware, and it wasn't the stuff that we thought we were paying for. Mm. I think it's awesome where you can get looking at just that chat. You said just just where the we have come to where what you can cobble together. You know yep. what tools you can you can. But it's this combine. isn't cobbled together. They're using yeah. Salt and Netbox, Viata OS. They're implementing GoBGP on top of Viata OS or ViOS as it's now called to do all their automation and get total routing security on a thousand dollar piece of hardware for a full internet table. Yeah. So instead think, of spending one hundred and fifty thousand dollars just for a router, right? That, they, that that this is so. This has probably been the best thing that's happened because of software defined networking. Mm-hmm. Is yep. that there has been an explosion of stuff that's happened. Like it was, it was a lot of talking. So being a, a former network engineer and then coming into software was great because I have empathy for network operators, and that has been really helpful to me because I understand that pain point. But there have been a whole bunch of other software engineers that have been working very low level on networking stuff for a very long time before us. Um, been working on C, been building stuff in FastPath on Cisco boxes. And suddenly they, we got access to all of those people when software-defined networking happened. They started mm-hmm. getting involved in open source and they started putting out all of this stuff whereby like now, if you're uh, you know, a service provider, you want to set up an ISP, you've got all of this great open source tech that you can uh, you know, put together very professionally, not cobbled. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are, there are tools to automate that and mm. you can come up with something very compelling. So you, you can't call this cobbled together when organizations like, uh, you know, Extreme with, with uh, uh, what was the product? I forgot the name of it now. Um, the product you worked on, Matt. Uh, Stackstorm. Stackstorm, right? Stackstorm isn't cobbled together, right? Neither are any of these products. And just because you assembled the components themselves a feature need, we've got to take a mature view to these and say, these are mature, stable, open source projects that have been around for years and years and years. They're not cobbled together. They're probably right. better than the vendor solutions because when, they've actually had yeah, some more of the testing. Stuff. By some more of the stuff that needs individuals, to happen. Then, then, yeah. 
like yeah, the 100%. fact that that these companies still like behind closed doors like continue to iterate on like um their routing stacks is like mind is mind-boggling to me right and often <laughs> often like companies will have like multiple routing stacks within one company through acquisitions or whatever and it's kind of like like even even if you like uh even if your routing stack is like super great like i don't feel like you're bringing a whole lot of value to the table by having like uh, a BGP demon that speaks this RFC the same way as everybody else. And there's like an equivalent, like uh, yes. equally performant uh, oh, yeah. option that's open source. Like, why are you spending however many millions of dollars to continue to develop nine BGP protocols internally when you could? I mean, like, I get there's technical <laughs> I mean, reasons why, like, they would take a while no, to No, there isn't technical out, reasons. Like, it's usually no, historical. You, you bang well, on that. Yeah. Like, I, I remember talking to the guys that were doing open source routing. Um, and they were trying to get funding for uh, Quagga, um, which was not bad, so it was slightly less popular with providers. But still, like it, it would have made sense for everybody to just say, "All right, this is probably good enough." If Cisco threw a hundred at it, Juno threw a hundred, everybody threw a hundred at it, would have a really solid routing stack that could be used everywhere, and then all the businesses would save money, right? We, we can all benefit from each other and do open source properly. Yeah, all of the actual vendors would save money. Like, right. they would, it's like, like why, why aren't they doing this? The, it, instead, it it's no like, sense. how much, how many, like how many millions are we allocating to add this BGP feature that's already <laughs> readily available in open source projects, but we haven't built it for our project. Right. Let, let's send people it. to the IETF to go standardize the <laughs> RFC to BGP for us all to then run home and then do our own implementation mm. of the RFC against our own routing stacks. Yeah, like, I, I do feel, although I am seeing FRR particularly get ahead of that now. And it has an OS, a sort of like a becoming the industry standard OSPF and BGP implementation. And I'm quietly hopeful that in the end, everybody but a couple of companies who feel that, you know, developing it in-house gives them some commercial advantage. I think for the time being, the bulk of network engineers still believe, still expect their vendor to be developing their own protocol stack. I want to talk to the field team who's going into their mm -hmm. customer and being like, hey, guys. Tell me about your business problems. And then yeah. there's 30 minutes of them telling their business problems. Like, well, let me tell you about our proprietary OSPF. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's wait, like, wait, wait, wait. like yeah. the customer's going to be like, I don't even know how to spell SPF. What are you talking about? All I know is that like the frozen mm. meat needs to go from there to there. Mm. I mean, we, we had that though, right? In in networking for a while, like how many vendors had stuff that was implemented off the back of draft <laughs> RFCs? <laughs> like, oh, sorry. <clears throat> well, there's that, but there's like multicast, right? Um, <laughs> well, there was a reason for EIGRP back in the day. There was once upon a time before IP was a thing, we used to have before Apple Talk. I was in engineer before yeah. I was in network engineering. <laughs> and the reason that we used to use EIGRP, and I'm quite because I used to do this all the time, was that I could run EIGRP and it would pick up Apple Talk, IPX, and TCP/IP, and run all the routing protocols the same way. So I would actually have the Apple Talk, IPX, and all sharing the same path, right? And it would only use up one set of memory. This Remember, this is back in the days of two megs of memory, right? So you only had one protocol stack for three different protocols underneath. And so that was the value of EIGRP. Whereas if I didn't, I had to run Apple Talk routing, and I had to run Novell routing, and then I had to run IP routing, and they would all run different routing protocols, and they would all, some of them would be RIP-like. <laughs> they were sort of rip ish but they would ne wouldn't necessarily make the same decisions about which path to go and you just couldn't tell right it just wasn't so each there was a reason many years ago and then 
Cisco decided that having a proprietary protocol actually had benefits in the IP world and it just got its own legs after that. And those are the sorts of things that, you know, that you need to be thinking about. You'd have to say, why ERGRP? And the answer isn't going to be because it uses some vague algorithm which is arbitrarily better, but the algorithm is so complicated that it should never have been implemented. EIGRP was way more buggy than OSPF was because the algorithm was inherently complex, you know. All I know is it was easier to redistribute routes into an MPLS v BGP VPN with EIGRP than OSPF, so that was why I tried to use it as much as I could <laughs> when connecting to customers. <laughs> Shut your filthy mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and it was that a rip? I was like, I was like, I don't want to touch SPF. Give me that a rip when I'm redistributing routes. <laughs> it, it, it checked boxes on my CCNA years and years and years ago. That's why I learned any of it. But that's about it. This <laughs> <laughs> is back in my day. We were doing riffs. A big part of my CNA was token ring and routing, and the uh, you know, ring hops, ring interface numbers. Anyway. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I think we need to wrap this up. We're getting we've gone a little bit long. Thank you so much to everybody from, for joining us today. Why don't we go around the uh, virtual card table here and uh, why don't everybody tell the people in the audience where they can find you on the internet? We'll start with you, uh, Brent. I got Twitter at Network Static. I blog at NetworkStatic.net and I'm on GitHub at NerdAlert. And you're also looking for a job. So if people want to hire him, you should go and find him. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> Darren. Yeah, I um, tweet at Dirty One Kenobi, uh, GitHub Dirty One Kenobi, and uh, blog at the Network to Code blog, Network to Code dot com forward slash blog. Dave, uh, I tweet at Dave underscore Tucker, uh, and you can find the rest of my sites through there. Fair enough, Matthew. Iggy M Stone on Twitter, and I don't have a SoundCloud. <laughs> yeah, still don't have a SoundCloud. Still don't have a SoundCloud. <laughs> well, thanks very much for the for everybody for joining us today, and thank you for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode either in your podcatcher, but on packetpushers.net, you can discover over a thousand other episodes from across our podcast network for networking and infrastructure professionals. It's like a time machine in there. I think Brent, when did we start talking to you? Like how? When it was back in two thousand and four, two thousand and five? Yeah, it's like insert the uh, Baby Yoda meme here now. <laughs> the last decade. All, been broken down. All right. So, and then we also have many blogs and news feeds. You can follow us on the tweet as Packet Pushes, follow us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can also become a member of our membership systems at ignition.packetpushes.net. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>